0: Hi, happy Mother's Day, you few moms in the bunch, greetings from Westgate Church, Um, we continue to pray and hold you in high regard, Um, consider you our brothers and sisters on the same team, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 working through uh, the series called Revolution, and the truth is, is that um, for us to really see how just revolutionary what Christ says in Mark chapter 1, I need to set a little context for you. Um, Wikipedia tells me there are 32 revolutions that have happened since the year 2010 to now, 32 now that's quite a few, I, I don't know how many are shocked by that, I was actually surprised. Now I, I know there's some things that have been going on, there's some unrest in Egypt and some things that were happening there, there's some unrest in South America and some other places in Asia, I, mean, I, I, I kind of got that, and then the Olympics made us aware that South, um, southern Russia, there was some kind of revolutions kind of going on, some unrest there, but 32 just since 2010 around the globe. And... Truthfully, the, the the in and out of conflict. There's a lot of stuff that there that's revolting, that should be changed, and um, and so that's kind of what we're getting. We've grown used to because we, the the world is now so flat and so small that we see a lot of things and we see what should be changed and we kind of um, have a hard time getting our head around all of those kinds of things. And so we tend to dismiss some of it. And in order to see what Christ, um, was calling people to, you, got to you, you saw two weeks ago when, Mar, uh, when Ryan kicked this Mark off, he, you saw just how the very first words of the gospel of Mark were revolutionary. In fact, they were treasonous. This is a book of treason. Um, as it was read in the first century context of a Roman-dominated world in a Palestinian kind of an area. This is just this would be treason to make some of the claims that are, are made in here. And so let me kind of set for you some of that context. Um, Ryan's already done that for you, but let me just tell you a few other things um, that, are, that were going on there. Let me turn this bad boy on. The need for the revolution in terms of when Christ was born, your handout will kind of help you walk through this. There were several different things that were kind of going on in the Roman world and then in the Jewish world. First in the Roman world. Rome is in a state of decline by the first century. I mean, they're going to continue on for a couple hundred more years, but um, it's already in a state of decline. And it's because philosophically there was no underpinnings to really have a moral um, culture. They've got this weird... Kind of things, two philosophies going on. Well, on the one hand, it's Epicureanism, and that is basically what it says is that pleasure is the highest good. Pleasure is the highest good. So pursue that pleasure with all that you can and, and get after that. And so um, the first century Roman culture is very, very. Pr- promiscuous sex is very common in terms of what's going on and 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 marriage is not held in high regard all kinds of different things are going on there and epicureanism says just basically get after whatever feels good now on the other hand there's this weird combination because we've got um, also stoicism that's going on and stoicism has this arrogance that believes that man and his mind can conquer all And so this is what they said. Basically, because of this, Stoicism teaches the development of self-control and fortitude as a means of overcoming destructive emotions. So check this out. So the philosophy of what's going on in the first century, on the one hand, they're saying, whatever feels good, go after it. And on the other hand, they're saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So what happens is, is basically first century uh, Romans are schizophrenic. And they don't know what to go after. They don't know what to pursue. Um, on the one hand, everything is okay, and you can go after whatever you want. On the other hand, you shouldn't do it because when you give into that, it's going to raise some emotional needs for you, and it's going it's to make you weak. And so basically, because of this combination of what's going on, um, charity disappears, and honest work is seen with contempt And what's worshipped in the first century Roman culture, any guesses? Power. Power is God, with a little g. And that power is predominantly expressed in war. So the very best thing that could happen is that there's some battle somewhere that you can go and fight bravely for and then come back and get your money for nothing and your chicks for free. To borrow an old rock song from somebody who's old, like me. I mean, that's what, that was the best that you could hope for. And so there's this decline that's going on in the Roman world um, that just is kind of freaking everybody out and sucking any meaning from life that they could find. And then, of course, Christ, who's born a Jew in a Jewish culture... Um, is also born into a vacuum. And a lot of times you'll hear about the revolution that he starts is because of some of the context of Rome. They have freedom to be able to travel. There's safety in travel. There's uh, roads now across the, the empire. There's a common language in Koinonia Greek. And so there's all kinds of good things, but there's also some things that he's born slapdab in the middle of. First is religion without any hope. Now, remember, at the time that Christ comes, there's not been a prophetic voice from God for 400 years. 400. Now, to put that in context, that's older than our country. 400 years of silence under a huge um, oppressor of the Roman government It seems as if God has withdrawn his blessing and protection and his hand on them. And now they are under this cruel, dominant force. And because of that, they're living in tax brackets, try this on, that are somewhere between 60 and 80%. How would you like to try to make your budget work under an 80% tax bracket? And so that's what's going on in terms of when Christ steps onto the scene. They've got religious leaders and political leaders that have no character. In fact, the only way they got to be leaders is is that they sucked up to the enemy, Rome. And then Rome placed them in power. So they're hated. Every single person that's in power doesn't have character and are hated. And they espouse and teach rules without any love. Lots of talk about what they stand against. And religious leaders are seen with suspicion. Money is worshipped. Sex is worshipped power is worshipped and there seems to be no meaning anywhere and it's in this context is that me is it sorry i'm popping somewhere it's usually my back maybe that was my back um (laughs) and it's in this context that christ comes on the scene and what he begins to say is he speaks right straight into something and he says basically i am i am standing all the norms of of advice and lists and rules to make your life work i have something for you that is completely different it's not about lists of rules it's not about earning god's favor it's not being good enough it's about something completely different and this is unbelievably revolutionary. Wait a minute, if I want to find peace, if I want to find God, if I want to find some kind of meaning in this life, I don't have to seek it. And Jesus says, "No, in fact, you don't have to because I have sought you." Mark chapter 14 verse 1 uh, chapter 1 verse 14. The announcement of this revolution. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. Now, last week, if you missed it, uh, Ryan set the stage for John the Baptist and all that was going on. And where he preached God's good news. And this is the first recorded words in the Gospel of Mark from this revolutionary dude. The time promised by God has come at last. Imagine that. Imagine that. 400 years. Remember 400 years of silence. And by the way, The 400 years before that were basically all prophets who said, you're screwing up. And now this guy comes and says, I've got good news at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, this word good news is a, is a compound word, euangelion. And "angelion" means a, an announcement or a proclamation. And the prefix eu, eu, means joy. So this is an announcement that brings joy. That is what the gospel or the good news that is used 75 times plus in throughout the New Testament is all about. He says and shows up on the scene, imagine this. You guys aren't getting it because you're, you're looking there like, this doesn't sound very revolutionary to me. All they've had up to this point is either God's not pleased with the way you're living or there is no God and worship power or there's a philosophy out there and there's many gods and go get as much as you can for as long as you can. And he shows up and says, no, in fact, repent. Ryan talked about it. Turn 180 degrees the other way. Repent and believe that this announcement, this history-making, life-shaping news. By the way, um, in case you missed, this word is only used up until the times of the writings of the New Testament. It is only used for pronouncements that involve Caesar himself. So to claim equal stage, imagine, here's a first century Palestinian Jew of questionable origin, probably born out of wedlock, from no money, no education, no backing, no nothing, and he's saying, you thought Caesar was in charge, but you got it all wrong. I'm in charge. Starting to sound more revolutionary? The essence of every other religion really is advice. Here's what you need to do to get right. And the essence of Christianity is essentially good news. Here's what God's done to make you right. Don't miss, that, don't miss that difference. That is revolutionary. The gospel is that God connects to you not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in history for you. And that's what makes it absolutely different than every other philosophy or religion. And now we see Jesus make an invitation. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, Follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Now, right this past week, it's been the context of the NFL draft. Any football fans in the room at all? Okay, yeah, a few of you. So we're watching the draft. What's your favorite team? 49ers? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, like, oh, duh, yeah, 49ers. There's no other team in the world. 31 other teams, but never mind, it's okay. (laughs) 49ers, and uh, did you follow the draft? Did you see who they got? Uh Yeah, who they get? Okay, yeah, who they get? Pretty good player? So you know what's going on in this draft is teams are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to try to decide who to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on. Quite amazing, really. And they'll take these guys and they'll watch every, every down of every play they played throughout their college career. Good chance they'll also watch how they played in high school. They'll talk to their high school coaches. They'll talk to their junior high coaches. They'll talk to their parents. They'll talk to their teachers. They, if they went to parties in college, they know who they went with and what they did there. And if they got arrested, they know exactly who they were with and what it was for. If they didn't get arrested, they know when they should have been. They, they know everything about these guys because they're about to pick them and put them on their team. Jesus just made his first two draft picks. He said, Simon, you and your brother Andrew, come on. Come on with me, and I will make you fishers of people. Well, they responded by, you thought that he'd offered them a million bucks. They left their nets at once followed him, and a little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets, and he called them at once. And they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. By the way, that tells you, Zebedee's probably pretty rich. James and John are pretty well off. The company's pretty big. In fact, there's a a discovery in the city of Jerusalem that it was a little shop there that sold fish that had the name on it, Zebedee's. So they may have been a big enough company that they, they actually shipped all of their, their fish into Jerusalem. So that he calls these two brothers as well, James and John. They leave their father at once and come and join there. Now, here's, the, here's what we know about these four guys. These are pretty interesting. Uh, Simon and Andrew were raised by the Zebedee family. Simon and Andrew, probably his father died early, and so they have grown up Um, as children and as kids and as teenagers and now uh, older teenagers they grew up this whole time these four folks grew up together fought together wrestled together talked about their first kiss together I mean all the all the things that guys do these four guys have done and Jesus chose them Interestingly enough, Zebedee, we don't know a ton about Zebedee, but Zebedee's wife, anybody know on Mother's Day who um, James and John's mom was? Salome, very good. Way to go, sit in the front row, you get smarter. <laughs> Salome, Salome is a stud. She is an absolute stud. She's at the cross when Christ uh, is crucified. She's, she's, she's all over the place. And there's something else about Salome that's pretty interesting. She has a sister that you might have heard of named Mary. Yeah, the Virgin Mary, that one. That makes James and John Jesus' cousins. Hello. There's a chance. We don't know for sure, but there's a chance. Jesus hung out with these four dudes as kids. And he picks, in fact, he picks his whole team of 12. All of them but one are chosen right from this region up on the south uh, or the western shore, of the Sea of Galilee, little area that I've had the privilege of being able to go to. And you can go right there and see where, where Jesus and James and John and Andrew and Simon all kind of hung out and did it. By the way, he picked 11 of his 12 from the area of Galilee. The one disciple that he didn't choose from Galilee, guess where he was from? south. And guess who it was? Anybody know? Judas. Yeah, it was Judas. So Judas the betrayer is the only one that didn't come from Galilee. He was from down south by uh, Jerusalem. And it's down in this area that Jesus picks his team. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Jesus is picking the team instead of the team picking Jesus. Because that's the way normally that you would enter into a relationship with a teaching rabbi. Is that there would be these rabbis, first of all, you kind of have to know how you went to school. So let me walk you through that and talk about the recruits a little bit. I've, I've listed the three ways that school goes on um, right there. You would go first to Bet-Saphir, and that would be from age around 5 or 6 to age about 9 or 10 all, the guys, all kids would go there. Even the girls would get to go to Bet-Saphir. And they would go in, and you would primarily be educated about the, um, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and some of the Psalms. And by educated about it, you would be told what they mean, and you would be required to memorize that. So every child that was 10 years old had the first five books of the Bible memorized, plus a lot of the Psalms. Some argue all of them. And at that time, they would say, okay, this next thing is the Beit Talmud. And and in that one, they would only take like the top 1% of the students. And they'd say, you've got the possibility of of moving on. And so they would take that top 1%, all the rest of them at at 10 years old would then go and learn their trade. They'd learn to fish. They'd learn to be a carpenter. They'd learn to do whatever it was that the family did. All the rest, that small percentage of folks would then go and they would go to like graduate school. It'd be like getting a master's degree at 11. And you'd be required to memorize the whole Old Testament, all of the prophets as well and then at some place around 14 or 15 years old you would graduate and most of the people then would then say okay now I know more than most I can maybe be an assistant somewhere but that's all I'm going to do I'm going to go learn a trade but the very best of the best that really had a desire to surrender the rest of their life towards this pursuit would go and find a rabbi out there somewhere and go to them and say I, I, I like the way you teach I like the way you live I under, the way you understand the scriptures is what I agree with I would like to follow Follow you. See, Jesus flipped it all over, and he said, Follow me. Normally, you would say, I'd like to follow you. And then he would that person would go into an oral exam, basically, and it would be like four, five, six hours where that rabbi would sit down and, say, and just grill them, just, just, just get after them about all the things, and they would just name a verse, and they'd have to say it, and they'd, and they'd try to figure out, Can this person be my disciple? But what he's really asking was, can this person learn what I know so he can live like I live and do what I do? And some of them would, of course, graduate or get approved, and he would say, okay, I think you can do that. I think you can know what I know and do what I do and live like I live. Come, follow me. Jesus apparently didn't give any exam. He knew these guys' hearts. He picked the flunkies. He picked the ones that were already fishermen. They didn't graduate to master's degree level stuff. They were rejected. Jesus said, I know something about you. And besides that, all of you are invited because what I can do inside of your heart will radically change who you are forever. They immediately leave and follow him that's actually also quite revolutionary how did it work out for them <laughs> now let me go down the list these are some of the things that we know about some of the disciples matthew um, was killed in ethiopia mark died in alexandria by being drugged through town tied to a horse luke was on, hung on a tree in greece john was put on boil, in, in boiling oil and then afterwards um, stuck on an island, Potmos, um, uh, in seclusion. By the way, John's the only one that lives a long life. He's the only one that died of natural causes eventually. Peter was crucified um, by Nero in Rome and when he was, they were about to crucify Peter, Peter exclaimed to the executioners, I don't deserve to die like Christ died. And so they flipped him upside down and crucified him upside down. James um, was thrown from the temple and then beaten to death. Bartholomew was skinned alive. Andrew was hung on a cross and they never did break his legs and they say that he hung there for several days and he preached the gospel the whole time he hung until he could not talk any longer. That's Andrew that we just talked about. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death and that's, um, you know, not the 21st century stoned that 's like a bad stoned. <laughs> Paul was killed by the same Nero that killed Peter, except for Paul was beheaded. I mean, over and over again, the way it worked out for these guys is the truth is, is that it just didn't go very well. Because why? They joined a revolution. They joined a, a put your life at risk if you 're seen with this guy group of folks. It was not some casual, hey, I think I'll go to church every once in a while kind of thing. It wasn't a revolution. And it was not a revolution of military proportions. It was a revolution of the heart. Where Jesus said, and, he, and, and these guys model it right here for us, you're going to have to put me over your family. all of your most. I know it's a terrible thing to say on Mother's Day. But you're going to have to put me over family. The most significant relationships you have in your life must be at best second or third because I need to come ahead of them. Not only that, you're going to have to put me ahead of or over your vocation. Whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that you're giving all of your energies to be as as successful as you can possibly be in, Jesus says, I'm going to have to be ahead of that because here's the the revolutionary thing that Jesus is going to ask of all of his disciples Jesus must be first. Jesus must be first. It's it's this craziness of saying, all of the things that are going on in your life, I'm not asking you to be moderately um, excited about what I'm doing, I'm asking you to put me absolutely first. You say, wow, how, how did you get that? Well, first, I see them leave their job and leave their family to follow Christ. And that's what's expected and asked of them. But also I know from other teachings of the Scripture in Luke 14, Jesus says this to a large group of people. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's... Go, wow! Really, Jesus? That's pretty. I gotta hate my mom on Mother's Day. Really, is the bald guy standing up and saying that? I don't believe Jesus is calling us to act uh, to actually hate actively. Now, I say that because of the context of all of these other teachings. But what He is saying is, is that. Uh, Comparatively speaking, it's like a hate relationship. So you you don't hate actively, but you hate comparatively. Nothing wrong with having good parents and loving them like crazy. I hope that I'm one. And I'm trying to be that kind of a grandfather. Nothing wrong with having good friends and and loving them and, and, and serving them and spending time with them. Nothing absolutely wrong with them. Nothing wrong with a good job. I encourage you to get one anytime you can (laughs) nothing wrong with being dedicated to it trying to be do it well so that they'll pay you better that you can be indispensable with your group nothing wrong with any of that that's all good but those all cannot be first place if you want to join this revolution this revolution is saying christ must be first and he, he doesn't say, like other philosophies, just completely avoid all those other things, that anything that's not of me is, is to be avoided. He doesn't say that. He says those things are all fine. They're just not good first place things. And he doesn't say as well uh, that you have to you know, say um, no to all of these desires or things that you have. Those things are all good too. As long as I'm first, I've got to be first Jesus is saying, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life would look like hate in comparison. And that's where the gospel starts to set itself apart because it isn't advice about how to get right with God. It's this joyful good news that says you don't need to earn your way to the Father. The Father loves you enough to make sure that you can get there just by faith alone. Because the gospel's not about choosing to follow good advice. It's about choosing to follow a king. And that's what makes it the ultimate revolution. You know, Wikipedia tells me there's been 36 or however many, 32, whatever it was, revolutions, 32 since since 2010. This revolution Jesus is calling you to is still active today. It is revolutionary to live among our culture here with a full-blown lordship obedience to a man who claims to be the king of kings and lord of lords. You don't do it so you can earn his favor. You do it because you already have his favor. In fact, Jesus said, "As, as you walk in that relationship, as you live inside of who I am, As people observe what that looks like, they will be drawn and want to draw the revolution or or join the revolution because of it. Jesus is not just someone who has the power and the authority to tell you what needs to be done, He is someone with the power and authority to do what needed to be done for you and for me. And that is life changing. If you're here and you think you're disqualified to join in on the revolution, Peter, Andrew, James and John pretty much tell you you're not. Peter's a total foot-in-mouth kind of guy. And Andrew, James and John, John is by, the way, by the way, probably the youngest of all of the disciples. He's, he could be as young as 13 or 14 when he first says yes. He could be only 17 or 18 by the time Christ is crucified. If you think you're disqualified because of age, well, that doesn't cut it. These are young dudes. If you think you're disqualified because you you got kicked out or you didn't qualify for the graduate program or you you just do tech work, whatever it is, all of this screams that Jesus is calling everyday normal folk. In fact, he seems, it just blows my mind. He seems to specialize in calling regular folk to do extraordinary stuff. Because that way he gets all of the credit and we don't. So if you're extraordinarily smart here, if you think like, you know, I have 175 IQ, I'm, I'm like way out of, the, I, I, in fact, I don't even know what I'm doing with these people in this room. <laughs> I would say to you, I, I'm not sure what you're doing here either. <laughs> um, because Jesus seems to specialize in using normal folks. Now he uses extraordinary people too. I mean, history is full of Einsteins and Bachs and Beethovens who, for God's glory, did great, incredible things. But for the most part, it's Peters and Andrews and James's and Johnses and Steves and whoever you are. He seems to take delight in progressing this revolution. I hope that you'll say yes to it, that you'll recognize that it's absolutely different than everything else every other religion of the world. It's not advice. It's news that brings joy. That the God of heaven knows you completely. Everything you're even thinking right now, every thought you've ever thought about your mom that was negative, every, everything you've ever done, he's seen and still loves you completely because of what Christ has done. This great, revolutionary guy, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Thank you, God, for the invitation to join this revolution, for the unbelievably good news that brings joy, that the God of heaven knows us fully and still loves us completely. May you allow us to take this in at a deeper level that any that are still considering Christ and have never embraced Him would would see the extent to which He went to so that we could all know that He loves us. For any who think they've disqualified themselves by a habit or a behavior or a a lifestyle that has pushed them outside of what they thought it meant to be part of the revolution, may they see that they cannot run far enough or hide long enough or go far enough away to get so far that your grace is not still pursuing them and reaching to them. And then, God, for us who have claimed uh, allegiance to Jesus Christ and in in, in our heart and soul bent our our knee to Jesus, I pray, God, that you would make us um, the kind of followers that puts him first in all of our life. May it be so of us, God. Help us. Give us the faith that we might have that. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.